Welcome, everybody, to the Patty G Show. I am your host, Patty G. I'm here with Chris Cummings of Pass It Down, a storytelling business that does it in a unique way. Sure, sure, yeah. Okay. We, we, we pivoted a few times since then. Okay, so for then for those that aren't aware, what is Pass It Down? Yeah, so uh, at Pass It Down, we are a digital exhibit builder platform. So we work with... Uh, some of the world's biggest cultural institutions and brands to help them build uh, interactive touchscreen and online exhibits. And from, if you want to know like what an exhibit is, imagine you walk into a museum and you're seeing sort of an experience on the wall telling you a story. That's technically what an exhibit is. It has a a narrative and a theme to it. And um, most museums, most exhibits have been designed the same way for like the last 500 years. Right. They're very physical. Mm -hmm. Um, they are, they can be interesting, but for younger demographics, they find them to be very boring in most cases because they are so physical and non-interactive. Right. It's for a museum, you walk in and you have to look at something. You got to read about something. Correct. Whereas I know like for the New Orleans, um, World War II museum, it started adding in the audio and the little videos that people just flocked to. Correct. Because it was more interactive and engaging than just watching or looking at a statue or something. Yeah. I mean, our, our belief is that, um, history and stories and content are always engaging, but the vehicle you present those in has to change to be more interactive, more engaging, more dynamic with younger demographics that have grown up with technology. Yes, especially with, (laughs) yeah, with everybody changing how they grow up and how they raise the kids, it's okay. The first thing they know how to do is operate the phones better than the grandparents. So, I mean, for better or worse, a part of it is that technology for younger demographics, for anyone using technology, has shortened our attention spans. Um, It's very rare you walk into a plane, you see people reading a book. It's very people you walk into anywhere, you see people reading anything. Um, We are so stimulated, so used to technology that that's the way that we want to be engaged. Mm -hmm. And so there's this this change occurring within culture and cultural heritage and and, in the way that we engage our visitors where we have to match that change in technology to keep people engaged and keep them walking in the door. Yeah. I mean, which again, could be for the worse because technology is again, shortening our attention spans, but it is a reality in the world we live in. Yeah, and it's you have to adapt to what people are doing. Otherwise, Correct. you're going to fall behind, and then nobody's going to go in there. They're going to not go into the stores or go into any exhibits that you have. Correct. It's an uphill battle. You can either say, no, we're going to face this by not adapting technology at all, but I don't think it's a battle you can win. So instead, the question is, how can we use technology to engage people today, but we can do it in a meaningful way? Right. Okay. So what what are some places y'all are in right now that people can go to and kind of experience it firsthand? Yeah. I mean, we're really lucky. So we just uh, a couple of weeks ago launched a platform for the city of Portland, Oregon to showcase every piece of uh, public art in the entire city. Okay. So how do we create an experience that highlights art, that highlights the ability for people to engage with art from murals to um, private installations and make art front and center. I mean, art is so beautiful and it's such an experience to interact with. Um, but in most cities, the way that we showcase art and art galleries is through really old school software. that looks like Craigslist and <laughs> it's, uh, and it's ironic cause you have the most beautiful pieces in the world next to the ugliest software in the world. And we wanted to rethink that. Um, but we also work with some incredible brands. We built, a. 
you know, kind of a digital history experience for Porsche and Porsche Cars in North America and their experience center in Atlanta that highlights stories, some of the world's most famous race cars and races and stories behind the race car drivers to, you know, the stories of the people that buy the cars themselves and what the cars mean to them and their families. Right. So it's that, that virtual display that people walk in. They don't even have to ask anybody about the history. It's more they're just kind of told it. And it, it's, it's put yeah. before them that they don't have to go out and look for it. Well, Porsche was interesting. In Porsche's example, they had these incredible photos on the wall. Mm-hmm. You know, this beautiful, large photography. And you see it and it is inspiring to look at. But what you don't realize when you look at it is there's an entire story behind it. Right. So our idea is how do we bring that story behind the photo to life? And okay. so how can you hold up your phone, essentially scan that photo and all of a sudden unlock the story that's there? And you create a, a relationship between the visitor and the story. To, and that's something they'll always remember. Right. Because it's normally it's just like a little sentence of this driver and this car at this race. Correct. Now it's... On this day, this was the weather. It sets the scene almost. Or in this day, this is the first time in history that Porsche ever finished first, second, and third and won the Le Mans. Wow. Uh, Or this is a racetrack that is so small that to win the race, you have to circle over a thousand times. Or, you know, we did this um, incredible story. We had a a photo of this uh, gentleman next to a, a car with his wife and um, you know, we have a, a really phenomenal storyteller in our team and, and she in less than five days took that photo and figured out and contacted the gentleman 50 years later and found out that he had bought a, uh, a red Porsche just like that one for five cars in a row. And um, you know, he was in his seventies or eighties and uh, a couple months before we contacted him, someone uh, reached out to him and said, Hey, I own, I think I have your car from the sixties. Would you want to have a chance to go drive it again? Okay. So the guy goes down and meets with them and gets to drive his old car from the 60s. And the gentleman said, I understand that your your wife just passed away. So I want to give you the door handle that you opened for your wife for all these years to hold on to you. No way. Yeah. And, um, and, that's, and that's the beauty of storytelling. It's no longer a car. It's about the experience and the relationship in that moment. Right. It's something you don't ever forget, right? And it's what makes life special is to highlight those stories and the significance behind those stories. Yeah. And I think that's what we really try to do is to focus on the importance and the power of storytelling and then to use technology to amplify that. Mm-hmm. And that's... And I can, I can relate to the guy with the Porsche just because I'm a, I'm a car guy. And cool. so my first... One of my my first vehicle I purchased was a '94 Jeep Wrangler YJ, the square headlights and yep. all that, and I had it for I think six years, and still to this day I still try to track it down, down to see where it is, who's got it, what they're doing with it, and and maybe end up buying it back. I don't know, but it's just sure. having that that mind. Like I can picture the image of him saying, "Here's a door handle that you open for your wife all these years." And I'm oh. like, that just resonates with me. If somebody's like, "Hey, here's the." you know, the grab handle that you and your wife used every time you got in and out of the car. I mean, it was just such a cool moment. And, um, you know, our belief, and and it's just true, is that, you know, storytelling is our original form of communication. It is and always will be the best way to communicate. Um, They've done an incredible amount of research and, and brain studies to showcase the power of storytelling. And we remember stories 24 times more than we remember facts. 
which ironically is a fact to share that. But I mean, literally, four times more fact. It's it it's hardwired into us to be able to survive. Because before we could write, we passed down stories to be mm-hmm. able to pass down what was important to be able to survive. Right. And um, and so when you tell a story, you're using emotions and you're showcasing all the facets of a story. When we look at the brain, the brain lights up like a Christmas tree. Every part of the brain lights up. But when you're just conveying facts, it's like a tenth of it. And so that's why storytelling is so important is like it is it it literally causes you to remember things better than anything else and to make an impact on someone. And it's not we you know, in school, people like I'm a visual learner. I'm an auditory learner. Everyone absorbs stories better. And that and that's honestly what I wanted to do with the podcast was have people tell their business stories. Yeah. Come on here and just say, hey, you know, what's your story? How would you get to where you are, where you're going? Because to me, if I'm a, you know, a young business owner or something or I'm a, a budding entrepreneur, I'm going to learn best from listening to somebody who's been in my shoes. Of course. And have walked the path I've walked before. Everybody's got a unique product and they've got a unique set of circumstances. But at the end of the day, somebody's out there that has gone through a similar situation and has even then gained more experience throughout their situations that they can help you overcome some of your difficulties just by telling you a story. 100%. And I mean, even just getting to the business side of it, if you're looking at a, a store shelf, it's not the best product that wins. It's the the company that's been able to build their brand and tell their stories to you the best. Right. So what's what's your story? How'd you, how'd you get to pass it down? I, was this your first endeavor or was there something prior to pass it down? You know, I, I'm I'm lucky and like a lot of companies at this point, we have pivoted a significant amount of times. So, I mean, what we're doing today has nothing to do with where we originally began, but the heart of the mission is still there. Mm-hmm. Um, the original vision for Pass It Down was to be a digital storytelling company that helped families to pass down family memories. And okay. The reason I wanted to create that is that unfortunately my mom got very sick. So um, my mom uh, was a beautiful woman that was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis when she was 23. Um, That was in 1980. And so it was a very misunderstood disease then. And then um, my mom had me in 1987. And so uh, my mom was fairly healthy until I was about seven or eight. And she woke up one day and couldn't walk. Full-blown MS exacerbation overnight. Went into a hospital, didn't come out for six months, had to relearn how to walk, how to eat, how to talk and everything. And so I grew up really young where the doctors taught me how to give my mom shots when I was seven or eight. And um, just I learned I grew up, you know, at a very young age. Um, But, you know, unfortunately, my mom, when I was 17 or 18, going into graduating high school, going into college, my mom's MS again exacerbated. And she was diagnosed with uh, early onset dementia in her 40s. Oh, my. And so I became my mom's power of attorney and caretaker. And I had a a doctor tell me, essentially, if you want to get to know your mom's life, now is the time to do it. She will not have the ability to be able to communicate this for much longer. And I remember trying to call a biographer to record my mom's life story when I was like 18, 19 years old. And... um, it was going to be like four or $5,000. It was a lot of money, particularly when you're like 18 and eating up the dollar menu. <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah, it, you're, it, it seems like Mount Everest. Right. You're trying to figure out, you know, how you're going to fill up your, how you're going to fill up your car next week. And so I remember trying to do this myself. I did not do it very well. Um, but I had this realization 
that everyone has someone in their life they wish they could know more, have more stories with, have another conversation with. Right. And that social media doesn't capture that. Yeah. It captures glimpses of our life, photos, snapshots, whatever we're ranting about. Um, but there is an opportunity to take the expertise and the, the methodology and the skill set of a biographer and put that into technology. And so that was the original vision that came about is how do we put the brain of a biographer into an app? A um, whole lot of reasons why that didn't work out su- successfully. Uh, primarily in American culture, when we think that we need to record someone's life story, we also think that person's going to probably pass away soon. And we put it off. We say, we'll do it next week. We'll do it the following week because we don't like to think about death. And so the hardest thing in technology to do is to produce a human change or to change human behavior. And so there, I'm one of like 10 companies I know that set out to do this and we all are really close because we all care about the mission, Mm -hmm. but to change that behavior of putting it off and to create uh, urgency is not the right word. It's urgent, but it's paralyzing. How do you get around the paralysis? Right. Nope. Nobody wants to say, Hey, can I start recording your life? Because you may, you're not going to be here one day. Yeah. And as soon as I tell you that, it's okay, well, wait, am I, am I dying tomorrow? <laughs> like, well, the amount of people that can say, oh, yeah, I sat down with my grandma and I like, turned my phone on, but I kind of hit it so she wouldn't know. Mm-hmm. I've had hundreds, if not thousands of people tell me that story. Yeah. It's because you're able to capture it real time. And because they know that your, your grandmother is going to be uncomfortable and get a little bit nervous too, right? How do you cr- make it feel comfortable? Yeah. And that's uh, that was one of the the hiccups I was going to run into with the podcast was how do I get somebody to sit down and tell me a story about what they've done thus far with this setup? I originally was not this setup, but getting to the point of having this type of setup, people tend to freeze up when they get on microphone. Well, the biggest problem in startups and technology is it's a little bit like uh, tombstones. We talk Mm -hmm. about how we founded the company and you know, you hear your success stories, but we never talk about the ups and downs in between. And it's hard to get people to talk about the journey. It's hard to talk, get people to talk about the moments that make them uncomfortable and to, to highlight that. And okay. that's really where the story is, is it's the in-between. It always is. Yeah. Everybody, they like to see the beginning when you start out and like to see when the end. But the middle sure. may not be as attractive for some. Because people don't want to hear, people want a, the Hollywood version of it, right? <laughs> right. So what, after you learned that that was not the path you were going to go, what made y'all kind of figure that out and pivot? What was the first pivot? Yeah, I mean, I'll say this. I mean, in terms of even before I started the company, I made a pivot. I, you know, my mom passed away in 2011 and uh, I was in law school at the time and I was practicing law and it stuck in my mind that if I didn't leave law, uh, I was going to have this regret of not doing something that was important to me. So to begin with, I made the leap to leave a very, very good career to go do something with no guarantee of success at all. And so that was like one just big jump. Um, when we started Pass It Down and built the technology, um, and this is where it can be misleading with the startup. I won every award you can win pretty much. <laughs> tons of press, tons of interest. But again, we were just facing this battle when it came to human behavior and human change. And it was not that we didn't have signups. It wasn't that we didn't have paying customers. It was that we had people that were putting up using the product because of their fear. Um, But I got lucky. I um, was giving a pitch. I had just finished as one of the top five uh, most innovative startups in the country from over 15,000 companies and Miller Lite's National Innovation Contest judged by Damon John. And... uh, 
this little lady walked up to me and she said, you don't know me, but I want to license your technology to showcase the history of my entire city. I know you're doing this just for families, but this is better than what I have. And uh, I'm the director of the, the library for the city of Chattanooga. And I will see you in six months, but, but trust me, what you've built is better and has the opportunity to do something much bigger. I remember telling my wife, man, I had an interesting conversation. <laughs> um, I'll probably never see this lady again. And, you know, sure enough, six months later, um, you know, she says, are you ready to get started? And what I didn't know is she's one of the most famous librarians in the world. Uh, she's one of my best friends today. Her name's Corinne Hill. She's the director of the Chattanooga Library. I've been named American Librarian of the Year. And, um, and so she was inspired by the country of Singapore's national initiative to document the entire history of the country of Singapore, because Singapore had transformed from one of the poorest countries in the world to one of the wealthiest in less than 50 years. And the country realized that if they didn't document this transformation, the children, the grandchildren would not appreciate, right, how quickly that country changed. And they wouldn't appreciate their heritage. And heritage is uh, important, not just for the sake of remembering history, but also a sense of belonging and value sets. And so um, they launched through the National Library an initiative to document the entire country's history. And so Corinne wanted to do that for her city and for the library. How do we showcase history in an engaging way? Mm -hmm. How do we invite everyone in a city to be a participant? How do we allow them to be able to share their story? I didn't know any of this. <laughs> um, I had built a really nifty tool to be able to do this for families. And so we delved into the world of um, libraries and local history and digital collections and realized we had built a, a better, more engaging experience to be able to highlight these historical moments while also opening the door for anyone to be a participant. And that was really important because what we also found is that the demographics of any city in the U.S. do not align with the actual collections. So... Um, you know, Chattanooga is 33% African-American, but the collections of the city were less than 5% African-American. That is true of almost every U.S. city in the world where it is predominantly uh, white male history and women's history and minority mm -hmm. history was not preserved. Okay, so it's finding a way to preserve that and then showcase it with the rest of it? Not only preserve it and showcase it, but our technology allows anyone to be able to say, I have a story, I want to record it and submit it to you. Okay. And that's the that's part of what makes it so different, is it's most local history and archives are only showcasing, here are the collections we have. But the best way to do it is to create uh, a way for everyone to be a participant, to create diversity within the archives. So how can you allow any visitor to be able to come in and record and submit their own story? Here's my shoebox of photos. Here's my experience growing up. That's the only way to get to a true history. Yeah, it's here's something that my grandfather told me and here's his story and here's his picture that he's got. Yep. And then now I want to explore this route with Pass It Down and, you know, tell people about it. And I want, and I want to be able to look up and say, I became a part of my city's history. Mm-hmm. Okay, and so how does that work uh, technically from mm -hmm. the user experience? From the user experience, we first showcase 
um, in a beautiful format, these stories from our clients. So we give them a variety of templates to be able to showcase their digital collections. It could be building a interactive timeline to an interactive, beautiful mosaic to just a very user forward um, digital collections experience. But then we also have the ability to integrate um, the ability to almost have like a digital recording booth where you can then submit your own story, whether that's in video, audio, text, photo, and you can highlight where it took place, when it took place. Um, do you want to submit the story anonymously? Do you want to be able to identify yourself? But you have the ability to participate and to share your own story. Okay. That's... And and that does not exist today. Right. I mean, I, I, I've never heard of a place where I can go in, especially a museum of that nature, and say, hey, I've got a story I want to submit. It's right. more of you're going there to receive, not Correct. give. And that's what we say is like cultural heritage until now has been a one-way street. Mm -hmm. We will tell you a story. It should always be a two-way street. It should always be participatory at every given moment. Your your best stories will always come from your visitors, 100%. Right. Yeah, I mean, it's you can, especially when I think of something like a lot of different people in one area, I kind of think of New Orleans. Sure. And it's, you can line up, you know, pull 10 random people, 20 random people out of random buildings in New Orleans and none of them are going to look the same. No. And each of them are going to have 20 different backgrounds, 20 different histories, 20 different stories of how they got to where they are and why they're there. But if you look at most history that's shared, the reason it's shared and what's shared is coming from very wealthy donors that say, I'm going to donate to you and this is what I want to be shared. And so even if you have a city that has massive diversity, the amount of stories that are typically told are very small. Right. You don't, when you hear in your history books, you only hear two or three accounts. Yeah. You don't hear a thousand different accounts of what happened. Nope. So, and I, I can go and tell somebody a story of an event that all three of us went to. And my version of the story is going to be entirely different of your version of the story. And so how are you able to kind of collaborate those to present it to the end user. Yeah, I mean, that's what makes it so fun is we actually have prompts to the exact same question where we encourage people to answer that question with their own experience. So we did a campaign for the National Storytelling Festival, for example, where we asked everyone to be able to share a story of their first memory. And so the cool thing is you got to see all these stories side by side. Okay. And uh, similarities, differences, different perspectives, but you create community through... The same prompt or same question, but with the diversity of responses. Uh, we did a similar campaign for uh, where were you when 9-11 happened or what was your, your, or where were you when JFK was shot or MLK was shot and what do you remember? It's those prompts that allow you to be able to see how people remember historical events in a very different way or a very different experience. Right. And then it's, you can almost get a collaboration of everybody and see where the nation or the community stood as a whole. The world's a lot smaller than you think when you actually see that, right? Right. Um, but we, but unless you ask, you don't know it. Yeah. I mean, it's, you don't know. So I was going to um, Grand Isle this past weekend, and we went off a different path that we normally go. Sure. And because we made a wrong turn, and my brother or somebody said, hey, turn here. And I'm like, well, it's up ahead. And they said, no, turn here. This is the quicker way. And going through that, I'm like, oh, my gosh. We're going through this part of town in, I think it was pre-Galliano right before you get to Galliano and I'm driving through this, this neighborhood essentially because we've made the wrong turn and we're off the main highway. And I'm like, Oh my gosh, I didn't know this place was here. I didn't know this thing existed. And it made me wonder what is all this 
history. Who who lives? What kind of a person lives here? Sure. And what does a community look like? But we wouldn't have stopped to take a second to think about that if we weren't diverted off for some reason, because we're all going down a single path. We don't necessarily stop to take a look around. Okay. So moving forward from into museums, mm-hmm. you're now working with businesses. So is that another pivot or is that just you had a CEO of a large corporation come up to you and say, hey, I love what you're doing. Come help us tell our story. No, you know what's interesting is when you're trying to identify what your target market is, what you're really trying to do is to look at who your customer is specifically. And often customer is described by a vertical segment, but I really think customer is more aptly described in our case by um, by education and focus. And so we look to uh, those with a degree in uh, archiving or in curating. And what we find is that there are people that exist from uh, brands to universities to museums, the libraries, to sports teams who have the purpose and the role in archiving and preserving and then showcasing the history of whatever organization they're involved in. And so we look at ourselves less at a vertical focus and more at a education focus and targeting the people that we serve best that have that education with our software. Okay. And so then it just kind of made sense to go into businesses outside of like museums and stuff of that Yeah, nature. I mean, to be frank, um, we're very lucky in the sense they came to us because okay. they have similar degrees, because we were referred to them in that way. Um, but, but again, it's not surprising because they all went to school at the same places, they all have the same degrees, they all have the same needs and the same way they are able to showcase and do good work, which is how do we preserve and showcase history in a engaging way? Preservation is the first goal because ultimately if the information is not stored in a very particular way and it's lost the time, that is the greatest travesty that can occur. Right. Uh, But to me, the part we focus on is, well, if you preserve it and no one sees it and learns it, interacts with it, what's the point? Right. And so there's a lot of good preservation technology in our sweet spot is saying, Let's take all that work you've done to preserve it and actually showcase impact. Okay. And create impact. Right. So kind of moving on to the more technical business side Mm -hmm. of pass it down. What, I mean, you're using technology that's a touchscreen. And so are you- Online and touchscreen. Online and touchscreen. And so what was it like kind of getting that started from the ground root? I mean, because you're coming from an attorney. I don't think they teach you how to code in law school. Uh, you know, I'm I'm really lucky. My uh, my dad was a very very successful entrepreneur. My dad was a world famous speaker. Um, used to travel over 300 days a year speaking, and was considered to be the world's best trainer in the automotive industry for 20 plus years. And so, you know, my dad started a company in 06 or 07 to do e learning, and I got to have a chance to come with him on that journey. Um, and to learn how to build a technology company. And, you know, he grew that company to a wildly successful company in less than four years. Oh, wow. And, um, and I mean, literally, you know, trained some of the world's biggest Fortune 50 companies and did that globally. And so I had the experience of watching a tech platform built from the ground up with no idea of like, I mean, it sounds silly, e-learning's massive today, but in 07 and 06, there are like five or six e-learning companies in the world. And the way it worked back then is like a company would say, hey, send us your DVDs or your VCR tapes and we'll put them online for you in six weeks. Mm-hmm. It's absurd, but that's how it worked. Um, and so I was very lucky that I got to grow up and see 
what it takes to build a technology company. And so I'd had that experience. And then before, um, you know, I started my tech company because my experience in growing up in that prior company, I had run a venture capital company for a year um, and had a chance to uh, run a, a portfolio with, you know, several million dollars in investments. And I saw good companies, bad companies, but realized that I had a, a, a need to want to build my own. Um, so, you know, it was definitely not my first experience in tech or in investment. Gotcha. So you kind of had the background where you saw it work really well and you're able to learn some valuable lessons. And work well and also more importantly, all the things you can do wrong. <laughs> Which is just a a part of it, right? Like, you know, there's so many ways in which there's so many difficulties in building a company. There are so many difficulties in raising capital. And, um, you know, it can be such a a roller coaster ride that you really have to, um, you know, have those experiences to know how to be able to navigate it and uh, withstand the ups and downs that come with it. And even if you see it, it still is different when you're taking the ride yourself. Well, yeah, I mean, you can, I can sit and watch somebody build a company successfully and I can kind of even be involved and help them get the company off the ground. But it's not until it's like my skin right. and my, you know, assets I'm putting in and people are now, they're not doing something for my behalf because I'm working for somebody else. It's all right. Now you're doing something for right. me and solely me. And so it's trying to navigate that field of how do I establish a relationship that this person or this individual or this company is going to help me out with my business, my idea for me, not for necessarily we're trying to build, you know, XYZ's company. And I mean, when you're starting a company, I mean, what you what you have to realize is there's infinite work, right? There is no right. point you reach where you say, I can go to bed and there's not more work to do. There is always work. There's always... Um, Things to do, things that have gone right, things that have gone wrong, things to follow up on. And to navigate that in a way that is efficient is very hard. I have um, uh, a good friend named Alex Lavage that will always remind anyone to think of their startup as a marathon, not a sprint. And it's it's so hard because when you're in a startup, you want to sprint all the time. Right. Uh, but it's a, a good way to bring yourself out. And I don't know a good founder that hasn't burned themselves out multiple times. Yeah, and it's even in the startup world, people, they think about that first seed raise and they think about that first raise and that second raise and that third raise. They don't think about, you know, necessarily right off the bat, the longevity of the company. Sure. It's what do we have to do now to raise the next round of funds? Correct. And um, and, and not only that, what do we have to do now that uh, lays the foundation for success and product and scalable and product? What do we do now that lays and creates a healthy pipeline for sales that will generate sales now and six months from now and be able to allow that to ramp up. Um, and good companies are built by consistent day-to-day efforts, not by sprints. Right. You don't, the unicorns are far in between. Of unicorns startups. are outliers. People love outliers. You know what I mean? Like they, they love outliers in every capacity and people point to outliers and, um, and I think it's the biggest detractor from being able to really focus on what is success in anything is when people just point to outliers. Uh, building a company, like a successful company, is actually a very boring thing. <laughs> it is waking up every day and hitting your metrics 
and doing that the next day and the next day and the next day, because you know that if you hit those numbers, uh, it's going to lead to the outcomes you need. Um, and, and most people, you know, are just too caught up in sort of the, like the sprinting. And again, the, like I wanted the Hollywood story. It's just being consistent. Right. It, it, you know, and, and consistency can seem boring, but it's the most important thing in the world is just being consistent. You just put the work in every single day and you track that work. And when you do it, you all of a sudden get to a data driven point where you know, like how to reach the numbers you need to be successful. Yeah. There's a, there's a lot more numbers involved with growing and scaling a business than people think. Everything needs to be data driven. That's it. Yeah. So on that data line, mm-hmm. you'll have a lot of archive data for businesses and individuals. How do y'all, where do y'all store that at? Yeah. I mean, for us, you know, because we work with fortune 50 companies, we're required essentially to use either Amazon web services or Google. Um, we do everything through AWS. If you don't use Amazon or Google, you will not get that business. Also, if either one of them goes down, the internet goes down. <laughs> right. Okay. So your, your, your data is protected from everybody. And it's, it's secure in a way that people feel comfortable giving you their information. Because if I'm telling you a story, I'm telling you my family's story. Yeah, I mean, uh, but, I, but ironically, no. I mean, I would say like one of the nice things about our, our business and our platform is that we typically get to skirt the strict IT protocols of major Fortune 500 companies and others because uh, we are creating ways to showcase stories typically for the public but because of that we're not typically showcasing trade secrets ah. right so if you're going down the road of being a, a platform showcasing proprietary information you may have to checklist a hundred page it security document whereas we typically only have to answer 10 pages worth of questions that's interesting so it's actually uh, in our case we actually are not having to deal with the the major security concerns of most it companies or most IT uh, security teams. Right. Most like at, even apps for the most part, they're storing all this data, whereas y'all are just. Yeah. So usually you're, you're put into two buckets, either the main bucket or the light bucket. And we're in the light bucket. Gotcha. Okay. So you said you had, you know, no businesses grown without ups and downs. What are some of the downs that y'all have kind of seen over the course of the years? Oh, yeah. I mean, like tons. We've had. Um, We've come close to, uh, you know, we had two investments fall apart, you know, out of the blue. We had one investment where the investment was completely signed, secure, uh, completely legally enforceable, check in hand, and uh, went to cash the check. The check balanced. The investor disappeared. Whoa. Um, and, uh, and literally you wake up and you go, what do I do? And what's going on? And you can sue the person, but again that costs money, you have no guarantee it's going to happen. And uh, How are you going to find the person to serve him the paperwork? And it was uh, and it was not like a sketchy person, by the way. It was a person running a very successful multi-million dollar company. And just, you know, things happen. And, um, you know, and so we've had the moments of, you know, and every, I think, owner has this moment where you look up and you have to immediately know how to make hard decisions. I had to fire one day 90% of my team in a day. Because of uh, because of a situation like this, and there was nothing we could do, and it was no one on our team's fault. Um, and so you look up and you go, "We're either going to make it or we're not." And I put my head down and just went to work and and 
finding customers and rebuilt the company from the ground up and built a more successful, scalable company because of it, right? Right. When you're in hard moments, you have to make the hard decisions and say, like, who is our customer and who do I focus on right now? Who has the greatest need for this? And it's not until your back's against the wall. In most cases, you can clearly narrow that down and define it. Um, something Damon John talks about, like typically you have to be literally at like the moment of almost complete failure in your end Mm -hmm. to be able to say, where do we go? Um, and we've been there a couple of times and and came really close. (laughs) Was there ever a point in time where you thought about quitting? Oh, I mean, like, I think you think about that every day, right? (laughs) Um, (laughs) right. Like, I'm very privileged. I, I, you know, had a law degree. I could be making a very stable, successful income every day without the worry or the concern that comes with the startup. Um, but, you know, ultimately, I think we have one life. We have one opportunity to be able to be very creative and to make an impact in the world. And I felt like I wasn't doing this for the money. Uh, money will come, but I wasn't doing it for the money. I was doing it because I saw a problem that I wanted to fix. And I felt like that problem was important enough and I have a team of people that believe the problem is important enough that we're dedicated to being able to change the world in a way where we know that it'll produce a good and that good's the most important thing overall. And it's worth sacrificing for that good. Right. It's, you don't necessarily regret, people have regrets for the decisions that they've made, but I find that the biggest regret that, at least for me personally, that I'll ever have is the stuff I don't do. The steps that I don't take, the actions I don't put into place because of what could have been or what fear there was when the reality is you don't know that that would have been the case. Or just in general, again, time is the one thing we can't get back. And um, to me, I typically run away from what is stable (laughs) and what is easy, right? (laughs) Like what what is the harder path? What is the one that allows you to be able to do something really unique? Um, that's the more interesting one to take. Right. When you have the opportunity to do something different, to get out of the, the mundane routine of the everyday, I mean. Well, it, it, in, in our case, it was this. I mean, when we saw what, what Corinne saw, it was that we're in a really weird place. We live in a more interconnected world than we've ever lived because of our phones and our technology. And yet we know less about where we live than ever before. We are so addicted to our technology, we've isolated ourselves from our family, from our communities. We don't know our neighbors. We don't know the person next door. We don't know the the town we live in. And uh, that's terrifying. We know that if people are connected to their family and their community, they live much more functional, happy, successful lives. And so we have an opportunity to say, we know that's important. We know that that people used to have that and they don't anymore because technology has taken that away from them. So how do we use technology to bring that back and to make it even more engaging and interesting? That's the problem we're trying to solve. And it's not about like making it cool or engaging or interactive. It's about building community. And the reason we build community is because that builds better lives. And that's important. Right. Getting a more engaging community that knows more about each other and can actually, when they're walking down the street next time, actually know that person and yeah. wave at them. And also, why was this street formed 100 years ago? What was the history behind that street? Did you know that you know, this uh, world-famous you know, change maker in civil rights wrote a speech on that corner? 
people don't know any of that anymore. And and there's a story behind every corner and every every location. Yeah, that would be a really cool story to hear about is the the formation and the zoning and structuring of Baton Rouge and even New Orleans and seeing how all yeah. that was built and how they decided to move the streets here, why they made the lots that size. I think that would be a fascinating story to learn in any city, any not city. even just Baton Rouge. In any city, why was your city structured the way it was? Who structured it? Who made the decisions to structure it? And why, at the end of the day, was the street named this? Right. Why, you know, why is you know Government Street named Government Street? I mean, we're really lucky from Chattanooga to a couple of cities outside of Chicago, uh, in Lake Forest, Lake Bluff, to New Haven, Connecticut, to Portland, Oregon. You know, we get to work with uh, to Asbury Park in New Jersey, which was um, a mecca for African-American entertainment and music of the 50s. And no one knows that today. We really get to work with some of the most interesting municipalities and cities to be able to uh, highlight and showcase their uniqueness and the history that's been lost. Right. Okay. So moving from that, what is the startup scene like here in your eyes in Baton Rouge? You know, it's, it, I'll admit it's still very new to me, right? Like I'm very lucky in that we entered the, um, I'm from South Louisiana and from Louisiana in general, but I entered the city's pitch contest, I guess in October last year. Um, my office had been based purely in Chattanooga and in Austin. We were a member of Techstars uh, and the Techstars Austin comp- uh, program. And uh, we were lucky enough to win the Baton Rouge uh, pitch contest and the $100,000 prize in November. And so it's been interesting to move back. I've met some incredible entrepreneurs wanting to build some very, very big, successful, scalable companies with big ideas. At the same time, it's been interesting that we're one of the few SaaS companies I met, if only SaaS companies. I say SaaS and they look at me like I'm an alien, like what is SaaS? And so it's, um, you know, it's a double-edged sword. I feel like there's an opportunity to help, um, you know, share, showcase the lessons I've learned and the ups and downs with anyone that has an idea that they want to build. Um, but, you know, the reason I moved back to Louisiana ultimately more than anything else is the culture. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think life is about people. You've heard me talk a lot about community. Right. Um, I want to be in a place in which I feel connected to community. I find the greatest joy in life comes from people. Mm-hmm. And so in most cities, we lose that connection to people. We focus on our career solely. We focus on our family solely. And family in Louisiana is not your direct family. It's, I'm going to hang out with my family. It's like 30 people on a weekend at a crawfish boil. <laughs> yeah. 30, and it's like coworkers even. But you call them family. Right. It's right. not until you move away that you really realize the difference between our community and culture in Louisiana and what exists everywhere else. Um, and I, you know, personally identify and love that more than anything in the entire world. And that's why I chose to move here. Okay. So that. Man, I was I was gonna have a follow up question of why you love Baton Rouge, but you kind of just answered that. You can't, yeah. I mean, it's um, you know, life is people, right? Life right. is is that connection that you have and that culture and community. My favorite Sundays are when you're at a friend's house and you look up and it's been nine hours later. Someone's been cooking all day. Oh yeah. You you, you move all around. I've moved all around the world. And it doesn't exist in other places. Really, that, particularly in that, the U.S., it it, it, it does and... it does a lot more in other countries than it does here. Yeah, but in the U.S., it's very hard to find. I mean, because we'll have like we'll have like our family 
Christmas parties annually on my dad's side. And we'll start, we'll get there like 6 a.m. and not leave till four or five in the afternoon. And we're, we're we cook three, we cook course. three courses of yeah. course meals all day long. And it's just all day you're cooking, you're sharing stories, you're exchanging your hat. You're good, good luck finding that anywhere else in the country. Wow. See, I've, I haven't spent enough time in other states to really get a grasp of kind of the culture that they hold. They, they hold culture, but it's just different. The culture is much more t- tightly knit, right? It's just a much smaller group of people. And I won't say they don't have culture or community, but I find that it doesn't feel as strong a p- community because of that. Yeah. Okay. So a- along the way, you've you've had many pivots, and your, your first product is not the product that y'all are operating today. Correct. The concept and what Which is the true, by is the way, there. of what... <laughs> Of what I would say is most good companies. And um, it's another thing I've encouraged, you know, Baton Rouge entrepreneurs, Elysian entrepreneurs I've met to think about is you should not think of pivots or uh, as failures, right? It's instead a step you've learned through customer discovery. Right. And we have to be much more accepting that failure is inevitable and you should look at failure as a positive. Yeah. It's you. I, I was having, I forget who I was having the conversation with the other day of, you don't learn necessarily everything you should when you get it right the first time. No. And you won't get it right the first time, right? Right. You won't get it right the first time. And even when you do get it right, it's not a sense of, okay, here's what I did right. So this is maybe the right way to do it moving forward. But then when you fail, you know, okay, that's not how to do it. You do not do it this way when you fail. Sure. And then you learn and you're able to adapt and say, okay, this did not work 100%. Let's try some variation of this sure. and let's see if it works. But you won't know unless you not only test it, but track it, right? That's why right. data is so important. Um, you know, the books I recommend to any good uh, entrepreneur, the Bible of startups is the Startup Owner's Manual by Steve uh, Blank and Bob Dorf, um, two of the most famous professors out of Stanford. Everything is a data-driven approach driven by customer discovery. Be as close to your customer as possible. Every member of your team should be close to your customer. Listen to your customer. And um, and it's a series of tests you take, right? And so the problem is when we describe startups, we describe it on the linear path. Like you're here and you're trying to grow to be successful. And we describe it as sort of like this like path to becoming a unicorn. When really building a company is more like a series of loops where you're saying, is this my customer? And if you're wrong, and it's not the correct customer. You don't keep going forward. You actually go back and you ask that question again. Mm-hmm. Was my customer families trying to capture family stories? The idea was good. Was there a big enough base and could we change human behavior? No. So we had to come backwards and ask that question again. And that's a good thing. And when you talk about like runway and capital, it's giving yourself enough runway to be able to ask those questions over and over again until you're able to overcome one and say, yes, I'm right. Now let's move on to the next question. It's just testing. Right. Testing and figuring it out as you go. Verifying. Right. Okay. So for raising capital, I mm-hmm. know that especially in Baton Rouge, a lot of startups and young startups find it to be one of the most difficult things. Very difficult. Is raising capital. What are what are a couple of lessons that you've got or maybe some tips and tricks that you've learned throughout your process of successfully doing it? So the problem with raising capital in Louisiana is that in most cases, the capital that's deployed anywhere uh, is based on how someone built their wealth. So 
If someone built their wealth in real estate, they're more likely to invest in something real estate based. Okay. If they built their wealth in construction, that's something they know. They understand it. Let me invest in it. So the problem with anyone in Louisiana wanting to build a tech company is how many successful Louisiana tech companies are there? How many successful Louisiana tech exits are there? And if there aren't a lot of those, which they're not, how are you going to convince someone that knows very little about tech to want to invest in you? You're already facing an uphill battle. So what I would say in most cases is whatever your industry is, you want to be able to find investors or potential investors that understand that industry. If they understand it, they understand your market, they understand your customers, they're more willing to invest in it. So, you know, in our case, um, you know, almost all of our capital has come from outside of the state. Um, and, it, and it always came from actually outside even the cities my offices were in. <laughs> so I was in Chattanooga for four and a half years, still have a, an office there. It's an incredible startup city. But our capital was almost always coming from um, Atlanta or Chicago or major metropolitan markets because that's where our customers were. That's where right. people that understood arts and culture and museums were. And so it's always trying to figure out like investment is like dating. They have to like it. You're going to go through a lot. You have to find someone that's going to get it. And it's just a process. And so, um, you know, whatever you do, try to find investors that have invested in similar companies to you, but not exactly the same and start building those relationships. Okay. So, I mean, that's, I know a lot of people I've talked to have, they struggle with that. And I guess I never heard it phrased that way as fine. Maybe not who's got the most money, but who's got the money in your industry? Not even who has the money in your industry, who just understands your industry, who gets what you do and why that change in the world's important. Okay. Um, and, and because if you don't do that, you have to educate and the time you're spending educating is time that would instead be spent going, I get this. Now tell me why you're going to be successful. <laughs> right. Really fleshing out the plan and even going further into the product. Yeah. Because you can't get into that if they say, I know nothing about this. Teach me. Yeah. You sell me on why this industry is great. Whereas if they're like, oh, I know everything about this industry. Sure. What you're adding to it is going to be successful. Let's start working out the details. Yeah, because then they're going to say, you're right or you're wrong, and here's why, because of my expertise. Right. So on that note, do you have any, you know, two lessons that you've learned on your journey thus far? I, I mean, I will say this more than anything. Um, it is cheaper and easier to build a company now than it's ever been because there's more technology and education available than there's ever been to teach you how to build a company. Um, in terms of technology, you know, technology today that didn't exist 10 years ago allows you to be able to streamline customer success. There are visual website builders that allow you to build a website without writing a line of code. There are um, email automation tools and funnel tools and CRMs. I mean, and all those have become so much more affordable that you can do this and you can start a company at a very low rate and test it at a very low rate until you become successful. So a lot of the barriers that existed to building a company have been removed mm -hmm. and that's a good thing. Right. Um, the second thing though is the education. This is the part I think most people miss. There are more 
books and resources where people are sharing the lessons they've learned on being able to build a successful company now than ever. But you have to put the work in. You have to read the books, do the tests, do the grunt work, take a data-driven <laughs> approach. Um, you know, that book I, I mentioned earlier, Startup Owner's Manual, it's a textbook like this thick. I have advised hundreds of companies at this point, you know, probably 400 plus, and there's maybe 20, 30 people that have bought the book. And of those, I don't know how many have read it because it's, it's work. Building a company is the hardest thing you can ever imagine doing, but you have to do the work to do it. Right. And if you do the work and you follow your chance of success skyrockets, but if you're not willing to do it, you know, you're, you're, you're ruining your chances that exist. Right. But it's not easy. Nothing good is, but your chances of being successful now are much easier because of education and technology. Okay. I love that. It's, I mean, there, the work's there, like you said. There's never a, a shy workload for anybody. And it's those that don't, maybe don't necessarily want to do all the work, but they want to do what the, the minimal amount of work they can to get by. People want to, they want to take shortcuts. They want to yes. jump forward. And, and, and shortcuts don't work. <laughs> Uh, if I could give a, a second shout out, my um, my director at Techstars Austin is this incredible guy named Amos uh, Schwartzfarb, who um, uh, one of the best people I've ever met in my life, um, and also one of the hardest working, most successful, and just shoots straight with you. Right? He'll call you out on your crap. <laughs> and uh, you know, he wrote a book last year because he has successfully built sales teams and B two B companies over and over again, called Sell More Faster. Mm-hmm. And uh, and it was just, you know, about building a data-driven sales approach and, and just being able to build those models that tell you exactly what you're doing and what's right and what's wrong. And it's another book I always point people to. And again, it's, you know, build a model, follow the model, test it, and improve. Uh, and I just really encourage people to do that. Okay. So to kind of start wrapping up the show... Um, we already we already covered why you love Baton Rouge and it's the culture that we have here. Hundred percent. I'm starting to see a theme within the guests. I kind of ask them all that same question: as what do you love most about Baton Rouge? And it all kind of stems around this idea of just the culture that we have here, the sense of community and the bond that is. If you're going to the grocery store and you can talk with somebody for 15 minutes about what's on the shelves, and then y'all can leave and part ways and never see again. But you also, there's people that are going to pull up behind you if you're on the side of the road and say, hey, you need help with your car changing yep. a flat tire. Yeah, because, I mean, outside of that, it makes much more sense to build a company in another place. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it, 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 it does in the sense of, you know, like you said, those, those hubs that are tech hubs that are going to be easy to raise capital. It's going to be easy to get in touch with people. Easier to find talent and talent yeah. that has much more experience and doing all the things you need them to do. But knowing that you can then share the story that you built a tech startup in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, kind of holds a little bit more weight. And you did it to defy all all the odds were against you because nobody does a tech startup here. Sure. And then you did it. And then you can share the story and keep it on. Or you can bring people here and introduce them to a culture. Yeah. And get them to stay. And get them to, and say, like, look, if you come here, it'll be unlike anything else in the world. And I, and I know that sounds crazy, but just just trust me. Right. Okay. So for one of the, one of the final questions is what, what can I do to help you on your journey so far? 
which you know by the way i love it you know the um this the motto you'll see on the wall of every Techstars uh, office in the world is give first and that's a commitment and an oath we take when we go into the portfolios you always give more than you take and you do it genuinely without any expectation of return um, I think, you know, you've already given by giving me a chance to just be on the show and um, have a chance to share, you know, my story and my journey. And, you know, more than anything, I hope I can inspire other people to be able to take a chance to do something that is a very scary leap to take, but one that can provide a sense of purpose and a joy you won't find in hardly anything else in the world. So, I mean, I think you've already done it. Well, there's, and I would say the same, if there's anything I can do for you, you know, always. Oh yeah. It's helping spread the word is the biggest thing. And that I find is, can be helpful for any company. Sure. Not, not just, Oh, I'm have this startup. It's, Oh no, I've got this business. It's been around for 10 years, but not everybody knows about it. Yep. So help me spread the word to get it out there. So more people can hear about me, more people can hear about what this business does and I find that to be just the best tool that not only I can give, but anybody can give, especially uh, with social media. Of course. Yeah. And, you know, the thing I always take it a step further is identify what are the best channels for you to be able to get the word out about. Mm-hmm. Like my company does zero, zero Facebook advertising. We do zero Instagram advertising. We do zero Twitter advertising. And it's because I'm selling to executive directors of cultural heritage institutions that I cannot reach in those channels. Right. Whenever I look at like, where do I get the word out? I am talking about being published in the nerdiest of academic (laughs) journals in the entire world. And so it's like, how do you get the word out? But also like, how do you get the word out specifically to the group of people that you want to reach the most? Right. So I don't know if I can put the podcast in. uh, (laughs) No, no, no. You know, point being told my, you know, it's just in general, it's like, um, you get the news out, but it's always, again, like getting the news out and like understanding like who are you serving? Right. Who's reading it? Who's listening to it? Yeah. Because I mean, I think that there's a difference between news and news that actually reaches the group you need to reach and mm-hmm. making sure that you have impact there. And that's what I always aspire people to find is like it, it's startups are addictive because it's easy to get press. And that can be a bit of an ego drive, but how do you actually like get press that actually builds your company in a real way? Yeah, you can have everybody talking about your company. But Doesn't if mean nobody's a thing. buying your product or nobody subscribing to whatever you've got. Yep. What are you doing? Correct. Well, thank you, Chris, for coming on, man. I really no, appreciate thank you. It. It's a pleasure. And for everybody watching, whether it's one, two, or a hundred of you, I thank you for your time and listening to Chris and I have a conversation about pass it down and everything that he's doing over there. They are doing some amazing things. And for those that maybe want to learn more, what's the best way for them to do that? Yeah, I mean, uh, check out PassItDown.com. Uh, again, don't know how many cultural heritage institutions or brands are, are here. Um, and then, um, you know, you can find us on Facebook, uh, Instagram, Twitter, and um, all those things. But I mean, in general, just check out our websites, the best bet. Okay. And for is there any like live exhibits that people can go to? In and near around the area? You know, we, uh, we're we fortunate that we just signed the East Baton Rouge Library a couple of months ago, and they're doing some incredible work. Uh, a lot of our, our clients are in other places around the country, mm-hmm. um, but we're hoping to build more of a, a base here in Louisiana because of its culture and heritage. Perfect. Well, then for everybody that wants to learn more, follow them on their social channels, check out their website. It'll all be tagged up in the show notes as well as this post itself. 
And I want to thank you all for joining us with Chris Cummings from Pass It Down on this latest rendition of the Patty G Show. I am your host, Patty G, signing out. Thank you all and have a good night. <laughs>